Welcome to Packet Pushes Heavy Networking, the data networking podcast that takes itself way too seriously when it comes to networking and particularly around orchestration, automation, and all things in that area. Now, we've been talking about software-defined networking and the, the ability to automate and orchestrate the network for a very long time. And in today's sponsored show with Cisco Networks, we're going to be looking at the topic of if automation is so awesome, why aren't more folks more automated? And joining us is Omar Sultan, who's a leader of product management at Cisco, and Kevin Corbin, who's a senior solutions engineer at HashiCorp. And Drew, we had a pretty good discussion here today, not a lot of uh, push on products and a lot of sort of how do we get the business, how do we get the technology deployed, how do we overcome this problem of how do, what automation, where automation, why automation, what did you, what did you get out of it? Yeah, this was, I think, a good far-ranging discussion that covers some technology issues, not not from a product perspective necessarily, but also the organizational issues, process issues, and making sure that managers and executives are willing to take the risk that comes with automation and put the investment in automation, both in tooling and training. So it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion. Yeah, it's always been difficult to sell the value of automation. You know, you can always say, I could make this better if you could just click a button and do it, but uh, it gets much more complicated after that to start to put solid reasoning and solid logic to make the business case and also overcoming people's resistance to change. And the framing question of today's discussion, and it's a broad ranging, we're not looking at a specific product or a tool, we're looking at a trend. And the framing question that we wanted to raise today is if automation is so awesome, why aren't more folks more automated? Which is a very good question because we've been talking about automation now for going on nine years, eight or nine years, pretty much since the SDN evolution came around. And yet, so far, we've only seen some fairly rudimentary automation widely deployed. So, Omar, let's get started on that discussion, because this is your bright idea. Why aren't folks automating more, in your opinion? Kick us off with the discussion. So, I think uh, there are a couple of things, you know, three big things. One is just the tools need to catch up with what customers need to use or want to use. Um, mm. We see some, you know, we, we see evolution in tools getting better. A, a lot of the tools that folks use actually got dragged over from the, from the server space. Uh, and now we're starting to see tools that are more native built for what networking folks are trying to do. The second one is just training. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a, a training and education and an organizational, you know, layer eight soft, you know, people challenge. I think the final piece we talk about is people underestimate the, the benefits of automation. I think, you know, the difference between even like 98% automated and 100% automated is huge. And I think folks get to, you know, like they get some stuff done and they're happy and they're not necessarily the pressure to get. It's the yeah. ideal way. You do the gap analysis, you solve the gap, the job's done, no more no more improvement could ever possibly be done and let's move on, right? <laughs> you know. Yep. I think there's a couple of things there. First of all, the tools, I think, is the thing I want to focus on most because I still see the tools that we're using today. I think you make a really good point about the fact that they're server tools. So the most common automation tool we see today is Ansible and some Python to glue it together. And that was originally built as a server automation tool, not as a network automation tool. It just seemed to get some traction and then people were with it. And part of the original value of Ansible was that I would be able to configure my network the same way as I configure servers. And now people don't use Ansible so much to configure servers, they're using something else. Kevin, you're from HashiCorp. HashiCorp has Terraform. Terraform's really popular these days, weirdly, because it's public cloud orchestration, right? It's been one of the better automation tools for actually orchestrating the public cloud is what I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I think from a network automation standpoint, we sort of have this like generational problem where you've got kind of the old and the new and the worlds are sort of colliding, right? And, and I think... You know, certainly Ansible is a great tool and sort of fits into like the mind map of how an engineer thinks about doing things from a standard operating procedure and whatnot. But then I also think you have other factors like SDN and network function virtualization that are sort of forcing us to kind of like rethink how we architect networks. You know, they're, they're sort of like, let me just take my physical box, change the form factor, virtualize it into a you know network function and sort of lift and shift that into, you know, more of a cloud is, is sort of one approach. Uh, and I, I think we see the sim similarities on the application side, right? Let me just move all my VMs into, you know, infrastructure as a service in a public cloud. Kevin, I agree with you. I think the tools are, are a, tr a transition. And as you say, that evolution in the tools to being the way that it is. But I think the other side of this is that the tools sort of force people to change. And it's the challenge there is how do you train people? How do you get adults to change the habits and um, and quite often the habits and the learning that they've built up over 10 or 20 years of working 
that's the other side is the people challenge of getting the training or getting the change underway. How do we, can we solve that? Yeah, I mean, I think the easy one to, to kind of think about is like sort of this generational like skill set problem. Like, I, I actually think that's a shorter term problem that will kind of like work itself out over time. You know, I, we, we have a lot more opportunities for like, you know, training network engineers in Python or Ansible or some of the frameworks and like that'll continue to happen. And, and you have a new generation of network engineers coming up that, you know, have, have sort of don't have that legacy, you know, base of knowledge around like, well, we used to do it with the CLI and we used to run these commands. Like that's just kind of foreign to them. So like hmm. if you start not training those people that, Hey, the CLI is the way that you interact with the network device. And instead there's these more modern interfaces. And then that sort of opens the door to, you know, a, a new, you know, kind of more modern tool chain than, you know, uh, you know, procedural scripting or Ansible playbooks, things of the like. So I want to push on something Omar said. Uh, his third point was that people underestimate the benefits. And, okay, tools can evolve and people can get trained up and learn how to do new things. But if they don't see a benefit to it, why would they? And So how do you get folks over that benefits hump? And to be honest, it's really hard. Um, the people are linear thinkers, and I think the benefits of automation are more exponential. And as I said, going from like 90 95%, and automation to 100 makes a huge difference. Uh, like any other automation project, we, you know, we look at, you know, we ask people to take a single workflow and automate the entire thing. And I think mm -hmm. if they they see the benefit of, you know, taking a single thing and automating, you know, 50% of it versus 100% of it, then they can kind of s start to map the broader benefits over a larger range of automation. But intuitively, wanna, folks don't get it. So I want to deviate there a little bit. Omar, you often work with companies at senior levels. What about mm -hmm. executives and managers? Uh, do they also, like uh, Kevin was highlighting the fact that engineers have to change their technology and their day-to-day -day technical skills, but are we also seeing managers and executives understand the value of automation and orchestration? I, I think they're starting to, but I, I think often th they understand it for the wrong reasons, right? They look at automation <laughs> as, a, as a way to to cut costs or look at it as a way to be faster to market. Um, and it's like automation, mumble, 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 profit, or, you know, automation, <laughs> mumble, 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 uh, new service. And all the details are in the, in the mumbling. So it's easy to make a pitch at the C, you know, to senior executives about why automation um, makes sense. And it's a very intuitive pitch at that point. Right. Um, yeah. The, but it's really hard at the you know at the people that you know have the day in day out job of running infrastructure, getting them to trust the tools and kind of see the vision. Mm -hmm. I, I have very much struggled. One of the challenges that I have is I think a lot of engineers would embrace change more if executives were more willing to embrace change. Particularly when I say embrace change, I mean they have to take risks here to be able to say right. I'm willing to bet some money here or invest in my people. And that comes with risks. I'm willing to take a chance that the old ways of doing things that w w can be thrown out if we can find a new way and make that. There's so many organisations out there that are afraid of that because so much change that we've done in the past has failed. Is there any way we could reassure people that automation doesn't fail or orchestration doesn't fail like it used to? Well, well two things. I think the first thing you said is, is really important is you can't approach automation as a cost-cutting exercise. You need to, it needs to be an investment activity. Um, you know, it's like, you know, if you deliver bread and you, your folks use bicycles now and you want to use, move to trucks, you know, you get that if I invest in buying trucks to deliver my bread, there's, there's a net benefit, but I need to spend some money mm. up front. Automation is the same way. It's, yeah, you know, you can get better productivity or get you know, more feature velocity. But at the end of the day, you also need to invest in tools and training and maybe revisiting organizational structure and those kinds of things. Hmm. Um, the, the other piece is just start small and work big. Don't try and automate your entire organization in one fell swoop. Find something small, be successful yeah. with it, learn from it, and then, then scale that. I think it's sort of like there's this zoom in, zoom out philosophy of like, 
you know, what is it that we're actually trying to achieve here? The network is not an end in of itself. It serves a purpose, and that purpose is to deliver applications to users and, and employees and those sort of things. And to, to me, there's this big disconnect between, like, w- what it is a frontline network engineer is doing and then why that matters in the broader context. And, and I think if you can get to those answers, then the sort of, like, why do we want to automate becomes a lot clearer. And then from that, you start to get those specific use cases that Omar was talking about, right? We can't mm-hmm. automate everything in one fail swoop. We have to start with where is the biggest value that we can get for an automation initiative and start there. Mm. I, I have this perception on the, the network side of the house with regard to automation that network teams are being sort of pulled toward automation because the developer side of the house, the application side of the house has been early thanks to cloud and adopting, you know, more automated practices and then the network side can't keep up. And so there's this disconnect and this frustration with the network team. Like you've got to be faster if we're going to advance our business, if we're going to do the quote unquote digital transformation, you guys have to catch up and being pulled in a direction isn't necessarily the best motivation as opposed to having good business value or good reason to do that. Is that an accurate perception or what is your take? I I think it's accurate, but probably unfair. I mean, I, I think I think you're right. I think infrastructure teams in general get yelled at <laughs> by the apps teams, uh, you know, things like DevOps, or even if it's not a DevOps environment, it's generally easier for the apps team to churn over, you know, to, to churn their workloads than it is for the infrastructure team to respond. Uh, I think also infrastructure teams are getting uh, benchmarked against the, you know, the cloud providers of the world and, uh, you know, that's the reality today, but, but I don't think it's necessarily a fair or accurate thing to do. The other thing I think is that, you know, obviously developers, th- their value of measure is how many changes, how many iterations, how many new versions have I rolled out well. The network gets measured on stability. How, mm-hmm. What's my uptime? And automation and stability and that kind of risk of moving to automation threatens that stability metric. It, it can and it cannot, right? I mean, if you're doing like a fleet-wide upgrade, it would be great if you weren't, you know, sitting at a keyboard for all... 500 routers typing in CLI commands one at a time. So, um, you know, if you do your homework, you templatize the rollout, uh, you actually increase the, the accuracy of the deployment and you, re- you know, reduce the time to do it. Um, but there's work that, you know, but you kind of need to do the work up front to make sure the, the back end happens. Right. I guess I'm wondering is the, to, to the way we measure a successful network need to expand beyond just it's stable and up into some other metric that people can point to and say, see how we're meeting goals in other ways besides just being there. Yeah. I mean, I, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, I mean, cause I, I think there's a couple things there that I wanted to touch on. Right. And, and I do think that the, the developer sort of analogy is good again, because you know, when you think about how the, the developers got there, they had this really nice convenient way that they could sort of launch a dev environment and kick the tires and, and sort of break things. But network engineers, on the other hand, they're, you know, they, they do care about uptime and, and how do they get that uptime, you know, and how do they arrive there? Well, it, it's been a hodgepodge of sort of like lab testing and things like that. I mean, you know, fundamentally we have to get better about how do we enable a network engineer to mimic a production environment in a low risk scenario mm-hmm. and get them exercised in some of these automations that will ultimately increase the confidence that the automation is going to be successful by the si- by the time it hits production. I think what we're actually talking about here is value, the value that we extract from the network and from the value that we bring by orchestrating and automating. Now, I think we've talked Mm -hmm. about that plenty of times on packet pushes about speed, stability of operations, the ability to make changes predictably and reliably. But another part of the value here is the process of buying it is still very complicated, I think. So teaching people about Terraform versus Ansible, teaching people about handcrafted artisanal python scripts versus an orchestration engine like cisco nso doing the work for you and then convincing them to spend money so at the end of the day money still remains the answer and there is a there's a reverse incentive here where vendors want to charge substantial sums of money for the new technology they're developing but when they Mm -hmm. do it make it very difficult to make the change because you can say that much money to make a change that i'm not going to be able to trust that's too much money and the and of course the vendors are saying but there's this much value in it there's you know this is going to change it's going to help you do better it's going to improve the value and we end up in this loop of i need to spend too much money to get an uncertain value in return is that a reasonable chain of logic omar 
It is, but I think it. Uh, you, you'll appreciate this comment. I, I think mm. you, sh- you should get out of the trust me mode with a vendor. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I can assert, hey, this will save you time and money or better productivity or, you know, improve your rate of change your infrastructure can support. But at the end of the day, it is really about whether that technology deployed in your environment will work because the technology may be awesome. But if, you know, your, your different ops teams don't talk to each other or your process is broken, automating a broken process is not going <laughs> to yield any kind of useful benefits. So I think the, the thing is, yes, you know, you know give your vendor some rope and, and find something small and, and test the whole thing out. You know, test the technology, but also test your organization's ability and willingness and desire to actually absorb and use the automation. And that'll tell you a lot about uh, how you can move forward. So there's this uh, an idea that we've got here and that the show notes are working on called uh, essentially about we're sort of talking about this already is trust. Uh, how, you need to be able to cross a threshold of trust in the tools and the system mm-hmm. and the vendor. So how do you cross that barrier? So I think this is where you need uh, part of it is you need tooling, right? You need we talked about uh, what you know building capability, which is the first part of the conversation. What are your ops teams capable of doing? Do they have the tooling? Do they have the training? The second part of the conversation is what you know what should they do, and what should you automate? Uh, you know the example right. I use when I'm talking to customers. I'm a big geek, uh, you know. I have home automation stuff out the wazoo, and I use the example of using HomeLink versus HomeKit to open my, open my garage door. So I've got a Tesla, and if you've seen the videos, and it does this cool thing, you can press a button in the driveway, it'll open the garage door, pull the car in, close the garage door behind it. The challenge with that is it's the pulling into the garage door piece works really well. The the opening and closing is kind of dumb because it just uses uh, Homelink, which is basically you press the button and it sends a signal to the garage door, and the garage door does the opposite of what it was. If it's open, it's closed. If it's closed, it's open. So the first time we tried this when we got home, it didn't work quite well. The car wasn't pulled in far enough, and the garage door started to close anyway. Uh, so mad panic dash to the wall. <laughs> press the button, and, stop. And, this is, and this is my wife's car, too. So, you know, uh, added pressure there. if my toys crunch your car, is the, I'm not hearing the end of it. <laughs> so I contrast that with HomeKit, which, you know, HomeKit understands state of the garage door. So I say, hey, you know, open the garage door or close the garage door. And I give it a specific desired state. And it's smart enough to figure out, okay, garage door is closed. I'll leave it closed or I'll open it. So reality is we turned off the home link part, uh, you know, after the initial excitement. But we use, you know, we use Siri all the time because we trust the technology. So I think that example translates very much to um, what we do, what we choose to automate. Because I think everyone saw the Disney, you know, Sorcerer's Apprentice at some point in their childhood. Mm. And, you know, there's all these visions of, you know, doing really stupid things at machine speed. Um, (laughs) I'm just giggling at the idea of the Sorcerer's Apprentice with the brooms carrying water and that's an automation script because that's actually very apt. You know, you get an automation script wrong that will, you know, fill the castle up with water. And it'll take your entire fleet down at one in like three minutes. (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of what we've, you know, a lot of what we think helps customers make that threshold you talk is is being able to trust it, you know, have things like understanding state and single source of truth for, uh, you know, what's running and what the infrastructure is that starts building trust in, uh, uh, you know, and using the tools and using them more. Well, I guess I feel like this circles back to our initial conversation that it, it feels like I'm, regardless of how small an automation product uh, project I'm trying to get off the ground, I feel like I still have to end up boiling the ocean because now I'm talking about, well, what is the state? What is my actual intent with this thing? Do I have the, the visibility and the telemetry and the metrics to make sure that if I kick off this automated process, I'm not going to take down my entire fleet? So how, how do I stop boiling the ocean and get into something that I can actually put my arms around? I think if we start with, you know, and again, for me, it always goes back to the value chain and the workflow to deliver that, right? And like, I'm a, I'm a home automation junkie myself, right? And when like my, you know, my wife was, you know, you know, very pregnant and I was still traveling quite a, quite a lot, like, you know, simple things like watering the dog, you know, we had three dogs and, and filling up a big water bowl for three dogs was sort of taxing for her. So, mm-hmm. you know, I tried to automate, you know, and did for a while successfully automate, uh, you know, watering <laughs> the, filling up the dog's watering water bowl. 
the, the problem is, is that when that goes awry and you flood your basement, you realize maybe that wasn't the best place for me to start. Right. right. And so I, I think th- then you look at like, literally did the sorcerer's apprentice, <laughs> but, but, but you know, in that particular case, right. It was, what was the problem and, and who was my user acceptance testing? In this case, it was my wife, right. It, right. She loved it. Uh, um, and, and I think Omar touched on a few things there too, which is like the, the state and sort of this lack of understanding. And when we take some of the tools that were, you know, made assumptions about like what the state of the, you know, the starting state of something was, you know, that, that works out pretty well. I, I always in that, that state conversation kind of think of the Lewis Carroll, you know, if you don't know where you're going, like any road will get you there, mm-hmm. but the, yeah. there's a sort of corollary there, which is like, if you don't know where you're at, you're lost. And, and I think, you know, with, with network automation in particular, like we can't take the same principles of like, I'm going to, you know, spin up this pristine VM and then I know that starting point and I'm going to apply procedural automation on top of it. We, we have to start by understanding where we are today and then not have to worry about all of the procedural things to get to sort of like the, I guess the buzzword here is like a declarative state, right? Like, let's not think about like, how do we get there, but where do we want to go to? So you're hinting there at the fact that network automation is not intrinsically, but some some part different to application automation. So where you might automate your infrastructure around applications like a VM or a container. And you can start talking about things like identity and declarative versus imperative. But the simple fact is that a router or a firewall or some other networking function often comes with a sense of state or has its own configuration before you start the automation process. And at the end, it still has to be working. And so as you point out, if I'm deploying an application, most people don't deploy on top of the existing application. They throw out all the existing containers and then deploy new ones. And it, and they assume that everything's just you know, wipe the floor clean, throw all the furniture out, clear out the house, redecorate, and then move in again. That's kind of how application, like in, in a container or a VM goes, whereas in a network, uh, especially where you have a combination of, you know, where a router is shared or a firewall or a load balancer or a service mesh is shared between dozens or hundreds of different apps, you can't just go and say, like, oh, I'm just going to throw out the network and rebuild it from the ground up. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think there's a couple things in there that I, I just want to get out there is that, you know, those assumptions are, are also somewhat time boxed into the generational problem. You know, if we tie it back to home automation, there's a lot of different systems in my house. You know, I've got a, you know gas, I've got water, I've got high voltage, I've got low voltage. And, and those have sort of r- different risk profiles for like how much tinkering I want to do versus the trust in it. Like, and, and, you know, with some of the emerging technologies, you can sort of optimize for least common denominator, or you can look at like, where's the puck going in terms of networking and start to build towards that. And that does bring in this notion of rethinking some of these things. Like, does it make sense for me to try to upgrade a box that's, you know, passing a billion picofarkles per second? Mm. Or is there a better way of sort of intelligently taking that node out of production uh, you know, making it more, uh, you know, immutable, if you will, where I'm going to take it out of production, shoot it in the head in the pets versus cattle analogy, and then bring up a new one mm-hmm. and then swing my load back over to that from a, from a traffic perspective. Yeah, I, I think, Greg, you brought up a good point where, mm-hmm. where it's trivial to kill an instance of a web server and spawn a new one. You can't really do that with a firewall if you just want to adjust a rule. You can't just you know, kill the firewall or just wipe it and reload the configuration. In networking, that kind of approach, you know, it's generally, it's not workable. Mm. And that's that is a fundamental difference then between the 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 way that we look at networking as a strategy and the way we look at servers. I mean, storage has the same problem, of course. So storage isn't has um, got a heavy amount of of state and i think the challenge here is that when you have state you end up being imperative whereas mm-hmm. most people want to and just do declarative and say i don't want to know i don't want to care i don't want to think about the state of the network i don't want to think about the state of the storage i just want to have some storage 
And so you end up with a whole new idea around declarative storage where you try to do object stores or declarative networking, which is what a service mesh is. It's fundamentally, it's of an overlay, it's stateless fundamentally, and it's linked to the statelessness of the containers. And I end up with a declarative network. But where service meshes fail is when all of a sudden you get to an imperative part of the network, which is there's a hardware or there's a gateway or there's an exit point or there's a logging engine. And you have to work imperatively because the state of that you know the condition or the the operational mode has to be done imperatively and we always end up in network automation clashing the two together and so i don't strictly agree with that i guess mm. so even with, with it you know if you look at tool i mean i'll put, you know i'll use an example because i can talk to it right so we can design mm. we can design an end state in terms of a configuration or a service definition mm. and then let the tool figure out what the diff is and how best to implement that so you can you can work declaratively um but you need tooling that actually supports that. The, the, the dangerous thing is to try and work declaratively. But if you have tools that really are an imperative of heart, yeah, then bad mm. things happen. Or you need a declarative yeah, to imperative. Yeah. So if you want to say, I want to create this firewall rule, you don't want to just declare that and say create the rule, and then not imperatively check that the rule already exists or that there's a rule that is denied, and then you're adding something that permits it and breaks security policy. Yeah. Those are the sorts I, of. I, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge with imperative is it, it can be misleading. It, it, it can be misleading, right? You, you, anytime you do an, take an imperative approach, you, you're making a set of assumptions. And if you don't document them, then, you know, at some point, things will run awry. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I run more than once I've had a conversation when someone showed me like a five-line script, hey, this does port turn up. And applies an IP address and turns up a service. So like, okay, that's great. How do you know the port actually came up? And, and literally, someone's telling me, "Well, the script runs like an exit code." It's like, okay, all you've, all you've told me is the script ran. You never told me if in, in the real world this port is now up and 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 passing traffic. And yeah. suddenly, to do start building that logic in your five line script is now like a fifty line script. And at some point, you throw up your hands and say, okay. Mm. This is not worth it. This is yeah, more worth because then it. you go from does this, did the port come up? Do I see counters going? And then you realize you need to check inbound and outbound. But just yep. because the interface counters are trickling doesn't actually mean there's end-to-end -end connectivity. So now you write another script to check that runs a check where it pings through or does a telnet through or something like that. And even then you're still <laughs> you're still not hundred yeah. percent sure. You know? Yeah, there's a great XKCD comic where you know they, they track the line, you know the amount of work to actually do the thing and the amount of work to actually automate it and uh, you know, it feels like the, the automating is actually more work than just sitting there and, and at the CLI and typing commands. And mm. and that's a hard hurdle for, you know, for, for networking folks. And why do I want to do this? It's easier and faster and probably more accurate for me to do the, you know, do it by do it myself. I think it's important too, because I've been coming a, a big fan, like, I think uh, it was like seven or eight years ago, we were talking about pets versus cattle, where we talk about mm -hmm. the difference between a bare metal server and a VM versus a container was this idea that, you know, the servers and VMs were like pets and we needed to start treating them like they were cattle. You know, you fatten them up and at the end of the day you kill them and send them off to market sort of thing. And the idea was to create a sense of churn and temporiness that you weren't holding on to a pet for its entire life cycle. In case of cattle, you only hold on to them for three years before you send them off to be turned into meat, right? And increasingly what I'm seeing is we, especially when we get into multi-cloud networks, mm -hmm where you've got so much networking in a multi-cloud and you've got Google's brand of multi-cloud and um, Amazon's version of multi-cloud and they're completely incompatible. Um, the only thing they do is pass IP packets and that's really about the only compatible piece of the two. And now you've got to start thinking, well, I've got my on-prem, I've got my WAN, I've got my campus, I've got multi-cloud networks that are radically different, different, you know, completely different technology sets. I've got to start treating my network like it's insects so I can just go and squash all the bugs. I, what I want to be able to do, if you want to feed the insects, you know, with cattle, you bring them in and you put the hay in the hopper and they all come to the... In the case of insects, you throw a lump of meat in a box and they just eat it until it's gone. That's kind of the transition we have to go through. Stop thinking of devices as, you know, these loving creations that you maintain and start treating them like insects where they're just... There's so many of them, you can't actually give them names or even a tag. Yep. Yeah, I think that's where it's important that we sort of 
decompose the problem into layers, right? And, and at different layers in the stack, sometimes an imperative approach is appropriate and necessary. And sometimes a declarative pro- approach is, is definitely more desirable, right? But we mm-hmm. think about like, you know, normalizing through the layered approach. And I think like SDN technologies and network function virtualization have sort of solved the, you know, layer three and starting to touch into layer four, and then the service mesh obviously is is the big buzzword of the day now. And and again, it's sort of perceived as this all or nothing value proposition where I'm going to Kubernetes and doing app modernization and microservices architecture, so I need a services mesh. But but those same TCP connections were running over all of the generations mm-hmm. of your network, and so how do we make the service mesh you know certainly more declarative from a user interface, even if behind the scenes there might be some imperative processes that get kicked off from a downstream standpoint. So, you know, we think about this at HashiCorp with console in terms of like, you know, yes, the service mesh and sidecar proxies and Envoy, all of that stuff is good, but there's some sort of like north-south, you know, choke points, firewalls, routers, switches, those things that still need and require some of those imperative controls. And and we have to sort of link them together as communicating sequential processes to get that overall flow. Yeah, I'm I'm a, you know, I have a, I have a problem with scripts, script and scripting tools generally in that, um, that uh, they certainly do what they need to do. So, you know, the, the tools, you know, the HashiCorp tools like console and, and so forth are very useful and very able to do things that I need. And they're very good at doing VMs and containers. But what I really want is a tool that does a lot of networking stuff as well. And this is where I like Cisco. Now, Omar's a part of the Cisco NSO team, and that's partly what we're talking about here. But the Cisco NSO, the network service orchestration tool, actually does a lot of the lit, the grunt work for me. I don't have to handcraft every single piece of this. So if I need to do service creation, I shouldn't have to write hundreds of lines of console configuration and define this logic. I really want something that's going to do the bulk of the work for me. So if I get, as I my networks move through automation to orchestration to intent, and eventually we want them to be somewhat autonomous. We want the networks to be able to, recognize that this state is known bad or known good. If it's known good, it should autonomously say, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> doesn't need changing. And if it's known bad, I want it to do something. You know, does it need to tune a cost policy? Does it need to divert traffic from this path to that path? If this device is not performing right, should I reboot it? And I don't want to get involved with those sorts of things if I'm running a fa- an insect farm. That should be done for me. And that's the goal where I think we'll be in 10 years. So what we need now is a combination of tools like console that do the, the tooling for me. But I also need a platform like NSO that's going to be able to know about networking, understand the nature of the device, know the APIs that are relevant to networking, and then act on my behalf so that I don't have to specify every single little detail. Is that... Yeah, to me, it's all about, like, you know, how do you abstract some of those imperative, you know, sequential processes through something like NSO and then present Mm -hmm. to the rest of your tool chain a nice, you know, something more declarative to it. Yeah, and I want to reinforce a point that both of you made. It, it, it is really important that there is no Uber tool. There's not one single tool that's going to do everything for everybody. It really is going to be a, a you know a confederation of. I mean, I love NSO, awesome tool. You're going to need more than NSO if you want to do any kind of large scale automation. There's a you know home for console. There's a home for scripting. There's a home for a number of different things, and uh, it's really about how you stitch them together and really find the right tool for the right job. And, uh, you know, sometimes imperative is absolutely the right thing to do. Sometimes you you want a declarative approach because it's, like Greg said, it's easier or simpler. Yeah. You know, starts to abstract the toil away. So given all the conversation we've had, is it possible to start an automation project in a brownfield environment? Or should I just be thinking about either I'm going to, you know, set up a new pod in my data center or fool around with something in the cloud and try to build processes and ideas and uh, familiarity there? Or do I want to try to apply this to brownfield or production, let's say? Oh, come on. You know there are no green fields anymore. <laughs> <laughs> There's patches of green sometimes. There's patches of green. Yeah. They're just growing off the brown. Yeah, that's um, it. <laughs> <laughs> Might be mold, but it's green. So, yeah. so absolutely start with, you know, any, anyone, you know, even in brownfield, you can start playing with automation and starting to automate, you know, a certain workflow and then try and adapt to it. 
I mean, I always tell people start with something small and insignificant. So, you know, the blast radius is, is, uh, is constrained, uh, yeah. if it goes sideways. Um, and, and then as you get smarter with the tools and as your organization gets smarter, then expand the scope. But a lot of times the, the, the biggest value is going to come in, in the brownfield environments because there's a lot of process and organizational crud um, that you can clean out both through the tooling and through the process of documenting the process and saying, okay, these, I do these 12 steps, you know, four of them are crap. I can actually don't need to do them anymore. Um, so sometimes the process is as valuable as the tooling. Yeah. Um, that being said, often it's easier to automate new stuff. Um, and we saw this with cloud adoption, like way back when it said, oh, we'll take on all these enterprise apps. We'll move them out of the data center into the cloud. And that we saw that actually not ha- didn't happen. What happened is, okay, when we do new stuff, we started in the cloud instead of uh, starting them on-prem. Sort of lifting and shifting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, people pretty quickly, well, not pretty quickly, but reasonably quickly worked out the pain points there. <laughs> So what we seem to be agreeing on is the concept that um, there's a place for um, not a tool but the platforms. So if you're going to do – I think of them as controllers just because that's the language that I'm somewhat familiar with. And basically what I'm saying is there's a place in in a network configuration to have a box that sort of sits over part of it. And you might end up with a, you know, a firewall controller and a, you know, load balancer controller and a whole raft of different things. But at the end of the day, those tools are going to sit independently of the work that I'm doing. Um, but I still also then need to federate the controllers, so bring the group of controllers together. And there's going to be some sort of lateral configuration between, you know, Cisco NSO and Checkpoint Firewall Manager and uh, the Cisco firewall management tools and, you know, your F5 load balancers and you're going to have service meshes. Bringing them all together into one whole is still going to need something like console to be able to do that. Um. Yeah, you need console. I mean, I always use the example, you know, when you need these domains with their own truth, you know, they're almost like autonomous systems. Uh, so each hmm. domain is going to have its own single source of truth. And they need something like BGP to be able to exchange information. So I don't need to know the inner workings of a firewall as much as I want to say, hey, this is my policy. I'm going to send it off to firewall land and, and trust that it got turned up and implemented. And then I can go on my way, on my merry way. Yeah, we, t- we talk about that at HashiCorp as, again, sort of thinking about, like, what's the workflow and not the technology and dividing up the problem space into those workflows because we can wait around for, like, that Uber controller that's going to do everything for us. Mm. I don't think it's going to exist. Instead, we have to kind of more take on, like, a, a Linux philosophy of, like, let's do one thing, do it really, really well, and then figure out how we integrate with other things, you know? We, we talk about it in terms of, you know, regardless of what un- the underlying technology and how they evolve over time on-prem versus in the public cloud. You, you sort of have four fundamental things that you need to think about doing, like provisioning infrastructure, securing it, connecting things to it, and then ultimately running applications on top of it, and then allow the, the sort of underlying techn- technical components and capabilities to evolve over time at their own pace, but really nailing that workflow of what you're trying to accomplish. So I think what you're saying there is there are lessons to be learned from public cloud in that they don't have an Uber controller. They give you the tool for this and a tool for that and a tool for this and a tool for that. And it's still up to you to weld them all together into some sort of unified whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the public cloud, there's just so much that we can learn from sort of the, the distributed systems, you know, folks out there and how they're thinking about modern application development. I mean, I look at the network and the internet and say, like, it's the ultimate, like, distributed systems problem. And so why wouldn't we take and apply those learnings from that are, you know, traditionally more of like a computer science thing, but really putting them into practice as we evolve our skill sets as network engineers and as we start to think about, you know, what the next generation of network orchestration and automation really looks like. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's a people side to that, too. I mean, if you walk into an organization and talk to the firewall team and the server team and the network team and say, hey, I don't care what you're using, you're going to use these tools in this process, they will, you know, probably not take that well would be the kind way to say it. Um, <laughs> It's much better to let them do the thing, use the tools they want to use and that are working for them, and then find the way to stitch them together and kind of stitch the process yeah, around those. 
this is what I call the sales problem versus the technical problem. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes the internal organisations of companies are built in little silos or, you know, the, the person who's in the campus only buys for the wired campus and there's another person who does the wireless and there's another person who does the WAN and there's another person who does the cloud networking. If you sell them a tool that spans those, like the wired and wireless in the campus, then quite often those two people can't agree on what they want to buy and they end up buying incompatible solutions. Now, that's the situation and making them work together. It would be nice to say, you know, I'm going to buy an SD access or some other unified wired and wireless strategy, but they may also buy competing strategies where they go head to head. Yeah, we say this all the time with like IP and optical where, you know, optical folks are very opinionated. They have stuff that they need to do that's unique in the tools they like. Well, they think it's unique. I think it's unique. That's a a different show, Greg. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I often talk about the fact that everybody thinks that their network is unique, precious snowflake, and that they've got... That's true. You know, but they all, you know, weirdly, you might be surprised to learn that everybody's network is exactly the same because they use the same products. They do, and they they do the same things. Um, Yes. Nonetheless, you know, at some point you need to figure out how much you want to push push against human nature and how much you want to kind of go with it. Mm. Yeah, how much pain do you want to put yourself through? Yeah. I think the autonomous system analogy is really good because this kind of gets into another area that comes up in in a lot of network automation conversations right now, which is like this notion of source of truth, right? And I think there's like, like the Uber controller, there's sort of this desire in every network engineer's mind to have like, what's my single source of truth for you know, the information that I need to, to do this automation. Right. And again, the reality is there is no single source of truth. It's, it's sort of a farce. What, what we got to start thinking about is like, how do we federate the various sources of truth so that I can get the right piece of data mm. for the right workflow at the right time and in the right format that I need to feed that to my downstream systems? So what you're asserting is a bit like what we have in applications where there's multiple databases. You never just have one database and the whole company uses that one. one. They have multiples, you know, multi- Oracle, Microsoft SQLs, SAPs, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, is that data may be spread out all over the place and that's a reality no matter how much you would wish it to be different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as we as we talk about sources of truth as the, the single source of truth, what we're kind of saying there is like, let's build a monolith. And and I think we've it's kind of clear now that monoliths are sort of an anti-pattern. And so, how do we start thinking about like microservices are, are sources of truth as microservices, and we need to you know mm. get different information from those services, and then also do so in a way that sort of crosses these organizational silos that exist, right? I mean, you know, a lot of network automation starts with, hey, I'm going to, you know, what's the IPs for my interface? What's the switch port configuration? What's my VLAN database look like on a particular device? And then we get like kind of day two from an operational standpoint, we're still stuck with these challenges around like, hey, the application's not performing well. Well, I don't have visibility into what the application is and what the components that are that make that up. Hmm. There is sources of truth out there, but because of the organizational silos that have been put in place, I don't necessarily have access to them. And, and again, I think the, the AS analogy, uh, you know, autonomous system analogy is a great one, right? Because we have sort of different levels of federating those autonomous systems. And the sort of the IBGP case, we, we trust everybody. These are devices that we control and we can sort of, you know, reason about their, what the state of their configuration is. And then on the flip side of that, we have an external BGP where I, I sort of trust you. I, I, you know, I like you. I think you're okay. But at the end of the day, like I'm not going to let you take down my network. And, and, and so, you know, in that sort of mindset, I think we can, we can start looking at like, how do we have shared control planes and, and, and probably most applicable in like the service mesh conversation again, like what is the, you know, where are these services? Where are they running? I think is the first problem and sort of a service discovery piece. Uh, uh, you know, then there's sort of the, how they communicate in terms of, you know, uh, mutual TLS and sidecars and all of that, but to, to get the overall value proposition of a service mesh, like you have to kind of be able to have both sides of the house, you know, your network operations and your microservices developers. So I guess what you're leading at there is the truthiness of your network. So if my network, if I do a thing to the network, did it actually do that? And this comes back to compliance as well. So if you want to say, 
is my network in this state? Is that true or not? And then after you make a change, is my network in a state of truth or goodness? And so you want to validate the compliance of this. Um, Omar, we've talked a lot on packet pushes over the last several months about formal verification as a method, and there are mm -hmm. other people doing various tools to monitor the network. So we've seen a rise in the out-of-band tools where they have nodes at the edge of the network doing constant testing to see if the network's performing as expected. Is this something that you think could become part of the orchestration engine, like either formal verification as a test before configuration and a test after configuration, or would you say drive towards the uh, uh, constant testing of the network? I, I think it's both, right? I mean, when you set out to do something, if you know, say you expressed intent to the network, you should, before you do anything else, be able to verify, okay, what I wanted to happen actually happened. And then you need the ongoing verification saying, okay, did, did state change? Because intent is a one-time thing. I'm going to push something out there. The, the changes happened as I expected. Great, I'm going to start using that, you know, start using that link. You know, life happens. Mm. And we need ways to be able to identify and capture that. Yeah. And that's the tool that I think we're missing at the moment. As we continue to scale up the complexity of the network, as our networking functions get more complex, we expose ourselves to more risk and we lose the sense of truth of what actually is the network. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we knew what the network was doing because it was quite small. You know, we would have the mm -hmm. CLI and we'd have 50 to 100 devices that we that mattered that were the core of the network. And we kind of knew in our heads we could imagine it. But as we get to a much more complex world, I think you do not need to think about the value proposition is I can't know the truth of the network, so I need something to help me. Yeah, that's a great point, right? I mean, way back when, uh, you know, I used to manage IP addresses on a Excel spreadsheet, and that was a <laughs> and that was scalable. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now yeah, that was way way back when. Um, yeah. Now I expect you know IP addressing to happen, and don't really I, you know I don't have the time to think about it. And I, yeah. I think your point is you, you have a scope of visibility that you can maintain that's scalable, and as the network gets more complex and do things. Uh, you know, there are things we just need to happen. I need to trust that somewhere someone's going to plug in a laptop and it'll get an IP address and it'll get firewall policy. And no one has to touch that or think about it because if they do, it's bad things will happen. Yeah. Back to the pets versus cattle. I mean, I, and I actually did a, a blog about this, a little bit of a shameless plug, but I think IP addresses as a construct, we need to think about like, do we really want to treat IP addresses as pets anymore? Because I think there's a lot of that going around. Like it, instead it's an implementation detail that's going to change. And frankly is overloaded now with containers and service meshes and all of that, that I can't glean any real usable information about the application based upon an IP address anymore. Right. Mm. Well, that's true. Then once upon a time, well, that's a different thing. Once upon a time, an IP was an address was an absolute source of truth. And then <laughs> 20 years ago, we decided to do IP NAT and the IP address lost its meaning. And so that change over the years has become an IP address is just a locator. Just to make that clearer, perhaps, if I know your home address, that is an absolute reference. Your home address is linked to a particular place and I can always find you there. But IP addresses lost that ability over the time and we can't trust an IP address as a reference. And even for that matter, DNS names have lost their sense of permanence because we haven't done a good job of securing and evolving the DNS. And I, I would say, at least in my view, because DNS has been left unencrypted, it's been left unsafe, anybody can spoof a DNS domain, you can't trust a DNS name um, like we used to 10 to 15 years ago. And so we have this problem where much of the networking technology that we have is not actually working the way it was intended. It's not trustable. And so we end up putting a lot of work on ourselves to try and prove and you know that the network is secure and safe as such. Yeah, there's an angle in there that, I mean, I, I would split hairs on you a little bit. The, the address analogy is a good one, but but just because you know my address, I don't know that you necessarily get a sense of, am I home at any given point in time? Mm -hmm. I think it's a relative to assume I, I might be, the likelihood is there, but with these microservices moving around, like maybe they're not there anymore. Maybe they were there this morning and they're not this afternoon, like in this sort of, you know, decoupled now. Mm. And I think the notion of, Insects maps nicely to IPv6. Yeah, that, and that's part of it too. Some, might, some, some might take offense at that analogy, but I mean, 
<laughs> well, it, it becomes important in that in the sense that if I start to use a lot more IP addresses because I have a lot more networking functions, but also because I have a lot more endpoints. Mm-hmm. So in the simplest of terms, you know, we've gone from a few hundreds of millions of devices in corporate networks 20 years ago to billions of devices in the public network. And that's really the transition that we're also following here is that the public networks are where the momentum is, not private networks. And to a large extent, we have to evolve as the consumer market evolves. Like networking no longer, corporate networking doesn't drive the market anymore. At best, we get to follow what's happening. This is why 5G networking is so interesting to me is because Mm -hmm. what products are being developed for 5G is what will devolve to corporate networks over time. And probably faster than you than, than folks realize. Yeah, well, I mean, well, you know, nobody in corporate IT actually needs 10 gig, apparently. A lot of them hmm. are buying 10 gig ports for servers. Not This is not for everybody, but, uh, you know, we've got organizations out there looking at deploying 100 gig to servers, and most enterprise IT shops are still just about to upgrade to 10 gig. They don't really need it, but they can't get one gig anymore. <laughs> <by> <laughs> and large. It's kind of funny. But, you know, to, to your model about going from, you know, work, you know, automation to orchestration all the way to autonomous, it's almost like a moving window, right? At some point, you need to, things you need to stop caring about. As you, as you look forward, you, you know, things in the background, you need to stop, you need to stop worrying about if you're ever going to be successful. And I think that's where we need tool evolution for each of the, I mean, I've seen the slides you use and, you know, for going from each phase, it's a gap and there needs to be evolution, capability and tooling. Yeah. To allow to focus on new things and be able to trust, okay, things are handled. Uh, mm. You know, someone plugs in a node, it's going to be an address. It's going to get an address. I don't really care what the address is or what pool it came out of or anything else, but I know that it's going to be network reachable, and that's all, all I really care about because I've got other things that are more important that are, are more more where I should be spending my time and focus. Right. Yeah, nobody got paid for deploying a device, but you did get paid for connecting the CEO to the network. Yeah, absolutely. So let's maybe wrap up with a couple of takeaways. Do you guys each have something you can give to listeners who are maybe looking to get started with automation, feeling a little perplexed about where to go and how to take it? Sure. I mean, I think from my perspective, the kind of the two key takeaways, start small, pick a thing that you do a lot and that you're familiar with and and try automating it, you know, See, you know, things like Python are, are a great place to start. But longer term, kind of recognize you're probably going to need more than one tool to kind of get where you, where you want to go. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, I, I would say, you know, really spend some time kind of broadening the perspective with the sort of DevOps movement. I mean, I know like some of the things that were kind of instrumental for me in my transformation was like the, the you know, some of the Patrick Dubois and John Willis. There's a ton of good content out there. Just what does DevOps really mean? I think it's a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot, hmm. but there's like a philosophy behind it, right? And, and and we can learn a lot from their, you know, what they've experienced in distributed systems management and then take that and apply it to the network. And then I, I think from a product standpoint, you know, I just a shameless plug for for learn.hashicorp.com you know a lot of our tools are you know get a lot of name recognition but if you're interested and want to you know start exploring what those might mean to your day job uh, learn.hashicorp.com we have uh, hands-on you know guided labs and and things like that to get you familiar with the tool chain and i've got a quick comment here one of the things that i want people to think about is don't think of python and scripting as the solution think of it as a step down a path uh, and evaluate orchestration platforms like Cisco's NSO uh, because they might get you a lot further down the path if you can work out how to make a value proposition and pitch it to your executives because those platforms can do a lot of the work for you and you may not actually need to do so much hand automation. You will certainly still be doing some hand automation with HashiCorp or Ansible or whatever it is that you're going to be using, whatever tool you choose for that, depending on your situation. But my view is is that hand handcrafted artisanal Python scripting is only a short-term goal, and you're going to end up rewriting it in a year or two anyway when you get a platform as you scale up. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Omar and Kevin, thank you for joining us. And are you guys social or on the internet? How can folks follow you? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, at Omar Sultan. And I'm on Twitter as well. It's at K.E. Corbin. Well, thank you guys. Uh, thank you for listening as well. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That's at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn, like us on Facebook, rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's a big help. And last but not least, remember that too much automation would never be enough.